Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Tom Caruso. We're at Pray Tell Wines in McMinnville. It's June 9th, 2022. Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate the invite to be with you guys. Thank you. First question, as you might know, is why wine? Oh, um, you caught me off guard. <laughs> uh, wine, uh, wine, I think, is, is something that's just been in my life, um, even without naming it, as you know, from an early age, just you know, throughout childhood. Um, so grew up in Philadelphia. My grandparents were Italian immigrants, so they came over from Italy in uh, in like the late 60s, I want to say. And um, my grandfather was uh, was a nurse back in Italy, kind of during wartime. And then um, my grandmother uh, and he got married and moved right to to Philadelphia, and and she got a job as. Um, as a seamstress at the quartermaster, which was doing all the like uniforms for um, armed forces, you know, folks, and so neither one of them had like a particular background in wine or anything like that. My grandfather actually, I don't think his medical credentials transferred to the U.S., and so he ended up getting a job working at a, a steel mill, and um, you know, they had this this little house and and. It was on uh, Oregon Avenue in Philadelphia, which is which is kind of funny. And I actually grew up on that same street. But you know, they had you know my mom, and and my mom didn't learn English until like the third grade. Um, so just a truly like you know strong Italian kind of family, and they were kind of rooted in a very um, at the time Italian kind of focused neighborhood. So. They were um, so they were there for for years and and just growing up there. My grandfather, you know, from an early like the earliest memories I have with him were helping him make wine um, on the sidewalk on on Oregon Avenue. So he had a little hand crank destemmer and a basket press, and we would get grapes from uh, vineyards in uh, Philadelphia, or excuse me, Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and and there's there's quite a few of them. I mean, even probably more now than than ever. So um, we would do that, and I thought that's just what everybody did. You know, I was that was the bubble that I was in, and, and so you know, every year during the fall, we would have you know people from the neighborhood come by and help you know make wine, mm. and and that's growing up. That was just like what wine was. So we never went out to stores and like shop for wine. It was just like his wine or bust in the house, basically. Um, and and he got competitive with it too, which I like. But you know, his whole energy around that process was it was so earnest and it was so kind of focused towards um, you know family building and community building. And and that's you know why I think it it just it kind of sits parallel in terms of you know my own value set in terms of um, family is just that I associate it as like a a point on the you know um, definition of what makes up you know family time. So, grew up uh, with that experience, and then um, and then I went to to school down in Washington D.C. and I studied um, political science and religion. So I was always into uh, creative things, but you know being in D.C., it just felt like hey, let me learn what you know the terroir of D.C. was, <laughs> and that was it. I was like I need to know more about politics, and so um, so I entered into that you know kind of. Uh, education track and never really thought about wine as a, as a career path by any means. Um, but after graduating from college, I tried to decide like what's what's the next step. And one of the things that I found is is that I was not um, the the kind of 
energy of, of where I was living wasn't necessarily matching, you know, what was, I felt was going to be inspiring to me or sustainable to me for a while. I felt like a lot of my interactions with folks were, you know, who are you and who do you work for and what can you do for me kind of thing. And, and it wasn't kind of scratching that creative itch. And all throughout college, I mean, I took, I think the whole left brain, right brain situation kicked in between politics and religion. But, uh, and so it kind of kept me, kept me kind of balanced that way. But I was taking, you know, uh, film classes and painting classes and all that kind of stuff too and I planned my school's concerts. And so I always found different ways to keep the creative energy going. But um, when it came time to, to figure out what my, my life's work or, or career path would be, I just felt like maybe DC wasn't necessarily it. So from DC, I moved up to, uh, up to New York. And um, in New York, I got a job as a book editor. So I was editing um, psychology books for um, for like professional development, companion modules to like practicing, you know, uh, doctors, you know, books and stuff like that. So very um, interesting, but dry material. And, you know, in my head prior to moving up, there was like, this is great. New York is such a like creative filled space and I'm going to go edit books and I'm going to write, you know, and all the time and I'm going to read all the time and, and feel so inspired. And I found that after working this job at the end of the day, not only was I just like drained of any writing desire, um, I was also self-diagnosing and, and <laughs> you've got OCD and you know, you've got all this paranoia and all that. So, you know, I found myself reaching for, uh, for some wine and, and, uh, and the thing that I really loved about being in New York was just that there's, there's so many great restaurants. And so, um, so whenever I'd go out to eat, I just would, you know, I'd get handed the wine list and, um, you know, I just felt like, Hey, I want, I should know more about this. Mm -hmm. I should, you know, I always had a curiosity around, you know, beer and, and, you know, whiskey and all that kind of stuff and coffee and, and everything. I mean, you can, I think there's kind of that, if you're a winemaker, you're probably curious about so many different types of things. And so, um, I just had, had all those curiosities. And, and so from there, I, uh, I was like, well, I'm going to, you know, keep my, my day job as a book editor, but there was a, the neighborhood I was living in had an urban winery in it, in Brooklyn. And so I was like, it would be really cool to just see if I can work here in some capacity on the production side. And so I, uh, I reached out to the, the winemaker there and I said, hey, you know, here's my situation. I've, you know, I've got a full time job, but I'd love to be able to contribute in any way and just kind of learn and, and see things. And so he was like, actually, you're the perfect kind of person we're looking for right now because um, we need somebody to cover the graveyard shift. <laughs> and so uh, and so I just was like, yeah, I'll do it. And so um, the cool thing about that place is that because it was, I mean, it was bigger than this, don't get me wrong, but it was a tight space. And so it just required kind of, you know, managing fermentation and production around the clock, just being, you know, where it was. And so I ended up working um, the night shift with, uh, with the assistant winemaker there at the time. And so what, how it would usually go is I'd go to my, my 9 to 5 a.m. job editing books, and then I'd take the train, and I'd get off the train at 5.30, and I'd go right to, you know, I'd have my backpack with, you know, some clothes that could get dirty, and I'd go right into, uh, into I'd eat a power bar, you know, and then I'd go right into <laughs> to, uh, the night shift, and I'd work usually from 5.30 p.m. until about, like, 4, 5 a.m., and I'd go home, I'd sleep for two hours, and then I'd go do the whole thing again. And it was just this really, I mean, I think I could do it now. I think I could do it now. But, you know, back then I think it was just young enough and just like full of like energy to to feel like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm exhausted, but I actually feel um, so like passionate about what I'm doing. I know I said the P word, but um, I felt so like alive and, and just like, you know, for the first time, like I was doing something that that was um, 
just fulfilling enough mm -hmm. in a way. Mm -hmm. So after uh, the four months of, of harvest that that was, that, I mean, the neat thing about that place was that, I should back up, I know I'm moving quickly here, but uh, the cool thing about that place was that the grapes came in from upstate New York, they came in from California, I think a little bit came in from Washington as well. And so the experience there a lot of times was, you know, my experience going into that winemaking was, you know, I knew of like, little things that little equipment and you know and that kind of thing and then to go and see you know bigger equipment uh, that was my context that's what I thought now all production wineries look like and so I thought you know I'd have these moments and I'd be like god you know they should really invent a machine that does this <laughs> you know and and he would look the winemaker would look at me and he'd be like dude those things exist but you're in an old like <laughs> funeral parlor in Brooklyn like everything's a workaround here and so um and so it was just like this funny thing where at the end of it all, he was like, I can tell you really care about this. You're really interested. Like you should go out to the West Coast, like go to California, you know? And that was, I mean, at the time, my, my wine knowledge in that regard was largely founded on, you know, the, the like drinking wine beyond just drinking my, my grandfather's wine was, was, you know, California for the most part. And so um, I was like, okay, you know, it seems like, like a cool, you know, thing to do. Maybe, maybe someday. Um, so I went back to, you know, back to my day job and, and I was just doing that from nine to five again. And I was like, man, you know, like I just, you just, once you get, you know, a taste of it, you're like, I got, I got to get some more of that. And so um, the other options available in New York were, were basically more kind of oriented towards um, sommelier and sales and all that kind of stuff. And so I said, hey, here's another thing I could do while I'm still here, you know, build a little more foundational knowledge. And so I enrolled in a, um, in a, a intensive sommelier program through through the court of master sommeliers had like this program with a culinary center in uh, in Manhattan and so I did that and it was like this seven month intensive of um, of basically studying you know wine theory for two hours a night and then blind tasting for two hours a night four nights a week and so I did that and at the end of that you know took the tests and everything but I just found that a lot of like a lot of the time my questions were always kind of geared more towards um, towards, you know, why does it taste this way or what, you know, how, what production decisions go into this or, or, you know, vinification or viticulture or whatever it was. And so at the end, it really just made me feel like, um, hey, maybe I do need to really pivot back towards, um, towards production. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, you know, I, I had kind of this crossroads where I was like, I was building a life in New York, but I was also at a place where, you know, my, my day job, just going in and, and sitting at the cubicle and kind of continuing to do what I was doing was, was kind of making me feel like the walls were closing in a little bit. Um, and so I just got to a place where I said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pack my things and move to the West Coast. I'm realizing now you asked why wine and not what's your life story. And so if we need to back it up at all, I'm happy to. It's fantastic. Okay. When I ask why wine, I'm really secretly hoping you'll tell me your life okay. story. So that cool. is exactly. Yeah, because yeah. exactly I still haven't cool. answered why wine exactly. yet, really, have I? Exactly the point. Okay. How wine, how wine, <laughs> how wine, how wine. Yeah, yeah, it's all the same. Well, before we get to the West Coast, I'm yeah. curious. Uh, we Obviously, we talk to a lot of people and they talk about that kind of that first experience, the first time harvest or yeah. first time. Tell me about the first time for you, some of the kind of memories you have of that, and what was it about it that was so appealing to yeah. you? Well, I think the, the main thing was just how physical everything was. To go from, you know, sitting at a desk for eight hours a day and, and just like, you know, reading, you know, constantly and then just like, you know, 
just staring at a screen basically. Um, you know, you get eye fatigue, but then at the end of the day, you just would feel like your body, you know, you just felt like, God, I, I actually got, I went from, so I was on the rowing team in college and then to go from that to sitting at a desk, I woke up like the, within the first six months of sitting at my desk job in, in uh, New York, I woke up one morning and I just couldn't get out of bed. Like my back had just seized up. And so it felt like I wasn't taking care of myself in the same way. Um, and that I needed to be doing something that was a little more like using all of all of my my senses and, and physicality and all that. So I think that that felt really cool just to be like really doing something that felt tangible. You know, so much of, of what I felt like I was doing in my nine to five job was just like kind of this pass through editing other people's work on a computer, sending it off to the next thing. And while I, I thought it was interesting, you know, it just felt like, you know, I was I was craving something that I could um, really kind of um, hold on to and grasp on to and, and, and make. And so in that regard, it just, it was, it was, um, it was so cool. Um, and a departure from what I was used to. And then I think on top of that, it was, you know, it was just at the right time of like, you know, having this, this really green curiosity around wine where everything was a new experience, at least on a, on a larger scale than anything I'd ever seen. So there was novelty to it, of course. Mm -hmm. And then just being able to taste it all and appreciate wine at a different level than, you know, as a little kid, I'd get like a little cup, you know? I mean, wine was never, um, it was never taboo or anything like that. It just was like a food product on the table in my family. And so, you know, it always tasted what I'd helped my grandfather make in some regard, but it wasn't like it was like resonating. It was more about like, here's the memory of something we just did. Whereas now I was finally in a place in my life where I was starting to, to actually appreciate and be curious and, and start to see the through line of, if we make this decision at Crush, you know, what does it mean on the back end and, and the final wine? And so to get to see all of that um, in person and, and, and um, experience it that way and the smell of the fermenter, I'll never forget the first time I like got that little CO2 kickback. I don't know if you've ever poked your head into a fermenter during harvest, but it'll wake you up for sure. And so, you know, feeling like that when I was doing my, you know, one of the early, uh, early punch downs was really, um, I was like, okay, there's chemistry happening here too. Uh, none of which I have a background in, you know, but, um, you know, I'd ask all those questions and take notes. I was very diligent about taking notes. Um, Whereas now, you know, it's like if I could find a pen during harvest, you know, it's going to get written on my arm or, or on a barrel or something. I use a lot of painter's tape around here, which is good. It doesn't feel, feel too permanent. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's really why um, it, it kind of resonated so, so hard and so fast, which is, which is good. And gave me enough momentum to kind of keep, keep moving in that direction as far as wine as a career. So, yeah. So tell me about your the the, the CMS experience. Uh, obviously, at that point, um, in, intensive learning about wine, intensive wine education. Uh, what did you think about the process? Uh, what did you take away from it? And uh, sort of what was exciting to you about wine from that perspective? Yeah, um, I think it was. I mean, it, it was invaluable in terms of of what it's allowed for me as as a wine appreciator, winemaker. I mean, all of the things. It it was invaluable because it. it it put wines on the table that I never would have known to seek out. Um, and it gave context to those. It wasn't just like I went into a wine shop and I grabbed 12 different bottles from 12 different places and tried to taste them at home. It was, you know, blind tasting methodically, like through deductive tasting where you're associating, you know, terroir and, and acid levels and ripeness levels and all that stuff, um, actually seeing and learning 
you know, and, and kind of, you know, it's like this association thing that happens right in your brain where you start to say, Hey, you know, I know I can, I can bank on, you know, this one structural thing, you know, representing this other place. And, and, and so I think from, from that standpoint, it really meant a lot. Um, it also gave me a lot of appreciation for folks who do choose to do that as a, as a career path. I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of, um, it seemed like for a long time, and maybe we're kind of moving away from it, but it seemed like for a while, at least early days in my career, where the wine industry does this really good job of compartmentalizing every role. You know, working at some of the wineries, at least, you know, earlier days for me was like, production is in this box and, and you, know, you know, direct sales are in this box and wholesaling is in this box and compliance and all that. And now the nice thing is ironically is that I'm just in the one big box for it all, which is, which is great. But I've always appreciated, you know, being able to, to kind of jump from box to box and learn a little bit. And so, you know, we could talk about kind of what happened next because I did, you know, play both sides of the ball a little bit, you know, from sales and production. But, um, you know, I think just being able to be articulate about, uh, you know, what you're tasting or, or how to sell wine and stuff like that was really um, important as well. Because, you know, you, if you're making it, you got to get out there and be able to talk about it in a way, too, that um, people find interesting and, interesting and their eyes don't just, you know, gloss over and be like, all right, on to the next one. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So w one more question before we get to the kind of the West Coast, the next part of things. Mm -hmm. uh, as you're going through this, you obviously you have, like you mentioned, you kind of have a memory of wine, mm -hmm. and then you have one kind of urban wine experience, and now you've had this intensive education. As you're learning wine, were you kind of thinking ahead, like if I made a wine, I'd like to make it this way, or I'd like it to taste like this, or this would be the style I would like to use? Absolutely, yeah. That's um, so. I will say when I first really started to get into wine drinking as an adult, I, I have to give a lot of credit to my dad, Mark, because he, um, you know, he was the one who who had you know a strong interest in wine, and, and a lot of the stuff he was bringing was from really reputable California houses every once in a while some Washington wines but you know I found that it was it was kind of a similar trajectory to how I, I think most people get into wine which is starting with some of those bigger reds they're friendlier you know they're they're riper they're they just they they give you a little more um, of, of kind of a greeting out of, out of the glass I guess mm -hmm. and so you know that style I think was something that I initially appreciated but as I started to learn more through the sommelier side of things and you know making wine at, at the urban winery and just tasting more in new york i found that i really started to stylistically pivot more towards kind of prettiness a little more towards you know nuance and, and kind of less muscular wines and wines that had a little more finesse to them and so um i'll never forget tasting um you know just everything being so expensive in new york a lot of people really gravitated towards um Beaujolais. So really great value in, in Gamay from, from the region. And a lot of times there were prettier expressions of, you know, lighter red style and all that. And, and that's just what I, I found myself like, man, someday if I could ever make wine, like this is kind of the style I'd like to go after. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of, you know, it was, it was, you know, put into the, uh, into the mental archive there to, to think about and kind of have an aspiration, uh, for and it actually is the like that moment I'll never forget. I remember exactly where I was at, at a wine bar, was the catalyst years later to when I actually decided to start Pray Tell. So, um, so yeah, it's a good question, but it's yeah, that's the that's the style. 
so many people have that. It's always interesting to see where where it strikes them and when. Yeah. Uh, so okay, so you've decided you're going west. Mm -hmm. So tell me about that process. Was it what were you looking for? What were you looking to do? And, and yeah. what happened next? Well, so I um, I still had I had made the decision while I was still enrolled in that class, and so for the remaining um, like month and a half, um, so I I quit my day job so that I could really focus on studying for those exams because panic started to set in. <laughs> Uh, and when I quit my job, you know, New York being what it is, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to move, you know, back into my parents' house, which is in Philadelphia, and I'll commute up to New York three days a week to go to the class and then um, and make it work and just spend the rest of my time studying. So I'd say like the last six weeks of the program, that's what I did, where I was just commuting constantly, studying and reading and, and starting to plan. Um, you know what might happen next if I, you know, if I chose to move out to the West Coast, which is what I, you know, ultimately chose to do. And so I had um, my my dad is one of five uh, siblings, and his two younger brothers are actually closer in age to me than they are to him, which is kind of crazy. Just big family. Mm -hmm. So um, so those two have always grown up like older brothers to me. And one of them was um, he had moved out to California to Sonoma. A few years prior, he had gone to the to the um, Culinary Institute in uh, St. Helena, and then he was working for a restaurant out there. And so I was like, well, he's in Sonoma. You know, it might not be a bad place to kind of touch down. And he's got friends already out there and, and a little bit of a network. And so I kind of set my, my sights on, on Sonoma. And, um, and so as I was planning to, to move out there, I ended up figuring out a, a harvest job. But you know, I still had probably about three, four months. This was in, in April, so it would have been um, you know, four, four months or so of, of uh, finding some other work to do. And so to make the trip out, I actually, um, I actually chose to drive cross country with my grandfather. Uh, and so I'll never forget the day before we left, my grandfather looks at me very, you know, like, um, like seriously. And he's like, diners, drive-ins, and dives. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, what about it? He was like, let's just hit all the places that he hits when we drive cross country. And this is this is uh, my my paternal grandfather. So the the grandfather who I grew up making wine with had had passed. I want to say like 14, 15 years prior, but um, but he my my still living grandfather said you know was like the one I was going to drive with. And so we get in the car the first day. We're all you know kind of excited. I drive for maybe nine hours straight. We're down in Tennessee, and we pull into the first place that he looked up on his phone for this this new uh, added you know level of fun for the trip, and it's a drive-in. And we've been in the car for nine hours, and so we pull in, and he's like, you gotta be kidding me, it's a drive-in? Like, he just wanted to get out of the car. And so I just looked at him, and I was like, diners, drive-ins, and dives. Like, you had a one in three shot here, you know? And so, to their credit, they were really sweet. They set us out like a little TV table on the side of the road, and they let us eat there, which is great. But that plan was quickly abandoned from there. So <laughs> so we, uh, we, we drove cross-country. We made it from uh, from, I guess Philly to Sonoma, and I want to say like seven days. So you know we were basically taking off some some pretty big chunks every day. I mean we went to the uh, Jack Daniels Distillery along the trip. We went to the Grand Canyon and um, and some fun stops along the way. And then and then yeah we we landed in Sonoma and uh, and you know from there we went you know wine tasting a couple of times. I still have the first bottle of wine that I bought from our, our tasting and I've been saving it. I want to drink it with them. But that was, uh, I think it's a 2008 or 2009 mm -hmm. bottle of Pinot from, from a winery out there. So 
Um, so yeah, I touched down, down in, in Sonoma and, and was lucky enough to, through my uncle, find a place to stay with, um, uh, it was like his then girlfriend, now wife's like family friend, they had a mother-in-law suite. And so they, you know, they let me rent that out, which was, uh, which was perfect for me at the time. Um, and, uh, and so in that first weekend we went wine tasting while we were at another, we were, we were tasting at a winery, um, there was another group with us and we just got to talk and it turns out that they had a, a winery in Sonoma that they were, you know, trying to build a new tasting program with and they were like, hey, you know, we'd love to have you come work with us for, for a couple months before harvest. Because I let them know, I was like, look, I don't, you know, want to just leave you at this time. I'm just, here's my deadline. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I just felt like everything was kind of rolling in the right direction, which is really fortuitous. Um, and so I, I worked in the tasting room there and um, it was in a, in a winery that was kind of up this, this crazy, crazy road. And, you know, moving from like New York really for, you know, five or six years out of college to, uh, to Sonoma was a little bit of culture shock. But after the, my like period of living at the mother-in-law suite ended, my uncle was like, well, you know, I'm moving in with, with my partner, you know, you can take over my lease. And I was like, it's great. But, you know, he had a tree house basically. And so I moved into this thing, and I'll never forget the first night I was there. I got got home from work, and there was a bat flying around, and it was just like it was at that like funny enough point in life where it's like, you know, okay, I think my health insurance expires like in the next month or so. I don't want to get rabies. Like, just hang on. And I was also like, I'm used to them running around on the floor in New York, not like flying around. So I did a spin move right out of there, and I went and stayed <laughs> stayed with a friend that night, and then uh, and then the next day managed to build the courage to go up there and get it out of there, which was. Um, you know, city boy moving to, uh, to nature. So there was an adjustment period for sure. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I loved living in Sonoma. It was a lot of fun. And I was really lucky. I worked at a winery down there um, called Bedrock. And the neat thing about that place was that the, uh, the owner had started it, I want to say, in 2008. But he had grown up in wine his entire life. So his dad started Ravenswood in the 70s. They just had like such a rich history of um, California winemaking under their belt. And his whole thing, he's an MW, I mean, really intelligent um, winemaker, but he works uh, with all like super old vineyards. So they, I think a lot of those sites are part of the, the uh, historic vineyard society down there. So, I mean, just in terms of like getting to see a side of California viticulture from that, like from that early on in, in my career was, was really, um, really awesome. So we were driving around constantly and seeing vines that were, you know, kind of gnarled and, and looked like, you know, they were a hundred years old. And it's because in a lot of cases they were, which was really, really um, fascinating for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. But while I was down there, I just, you know, and I just, you know, I remember always reading about Oregon, you know, particularly back in, in um, the sommelier program. And then even being down there, realizing like, hey, it's a quick flight or a quick drive, not quick, but, you know, a decent drive. Um, you know, it's always been the shortest chapter in any book that I've read, and, and I just want to know more about it. Mm -hmm. And so after harvest, I, uh, down there, and that was, I, now I have to say, working that harvest, all the things that I thought they should invent, they invented them. It was, this is corroborated now at that point. Um, but that harvest was the first time that I really saw, like, I don't, I don't know if serious winemaking is the right word, but just like saw like a degree of, um, just like dialed in seller um, expertise, you know, and, and efficiency and stuff like that. I mean, it was, it was really eye-opening to see it on that level. 
um, and then to just go and, and taste, you know, at so many different other cellars while I was out there. I mean, it was it was really um, really cool. Um, and what year was that? That was in uh, when did I move out? I moved out there in. 2014, in April of 2014. So April 1st is when I left uh, on, to start the trip, and that's why I thought it was a joke when he said the diners and drive-ins thing. But, um, but that, that was, uh, yeah, I was out there by mid-April or April 7th or 8th, so yeah. Um, but after that harvest, uh, I came up to Oregon just on a road trip and wanted to, to see you know the region. So I pulled into um, McMinnville and had, you know, I want to say like 48 hours in town. So I just, I went to, I, my first stop was Sokol Blosser. I think they had just opened their new tasting room. And then I went to Irie and Beaufrere. I mean, all the places that you would expect to see in, you know, a, that were making their way into a textbook somewhere. Um, and it was just like, I was like, this place is, is so authentic. Like it just felt like, not to knock what was happening in California because they've reached a level of like, just like, you know, beauty and, and buildings and all that. But it was just like, it felt like there was less of a degree of separation up here between who was making the wine and who was actually talking to you about the wine. You know, chances were that you were going to bump into, you know, the winemaker or, you know, vineyard manager or someone in, in you know, a tasting room um, that, and I use air quotes because it's like you go to a place like Beaufrere and that's like a place where you're in the winery, but there's also some, you know, like a door on two barrels and you're tasting, right? And, and that level of authenticity just really resonated with me because I was like, I'm seeing the real work happening here and, and they're sharing it with me and it felt personal. And I think that personal wines, I mean, were always the style of, of wine that I just gravitated most mm -hmm. towards was, was wines that offered transparency of like human touch and not just so much, you know, big wine making, so to speak. So before I left town, I mean, I drove up to, I continued up on that trip up to Seattle. He spent a night in Seattle and on the way back down, I was like, how much is an apartment in Portland? Like, can I, can I swing this? Uh, and so at the time I was, I was dating, uh, someone who was also in the wine industry as well. And so it just felt like, you know, there's this really natural synergy towards, you know, moving up here and all that. And so while we were on our way back down from Seattle, you know, we were looking on Craigslist and found the spot and they actually answered our phone call. And so uh, before we left, you know, put our names in for an apartment and got back down to Sonoma and a week later was moving up here, um, which was just craziness. So moved up right after harvest uh, in 14. And um, any advice to, to uh, aspiring people moving to a wine-growing region? Don't move after harvest, because they've been auditioning everyone that they might hire for three months. <laughs> so it was a pretty quiet time to, uh, to look for work. Um, but it was actually like it worked out kind of well where it just allowed me, you know, to take everything that I just saved from, you know, working harvest and, and not spending any money because you're just, you know, go to work, go home and sleep um, to just kind of living off of and, and getting out and tasting around more and networking and, and starting to see what um, what opportunities might exist up here in time. And so that's that's what I did. I mean, I was living, I lived in Portland for I want to say like six or seven months, but the whole time I just found myself gravitating out towards this way and wanting to be part of um, part of this community. And so, just kept applying, and then eventually got my uh, my first job out here at uh, at Rex Hill. So that was a place I had gone and tasted, and, and they have a pretty. Um, pretty long, you know, history for the Willamette Valley. I mean, you know, I think they date back to the mid-70s is when they got started. So 
really, uh, really kind of one of those places that I think when you're first starting to learn about the region is is um, is great because you actually can taste older vintages of things and and see what that looks like over time. So I got a job working in their tasting room there and lined up switching to harvest basically once harvest time started. So I got to kind of see both sides there. Mm -hmm. And um, and that was really great because to hear, sometimes I found that a lot of the times working in tasting rooms, you kind of come up with you know, anecdotal stories about the vintage or about a wine or, or what you kind of hear passed down from from the production side. And so to get to kind of, you know, go from sales to production and then back to sales for them was really great because I was able to bring firsthand experience with um, with working with that fruit back to the tasting room, which was, which was really, um, I thought offered a level of, of like, um, Storytelling to, to folks who are coming in on kind of the next level, which I liked, and then I just became kind of kind of addicted to being able to see both sides of things, which is good. So from there, I ended up moving uh, moving into um, a viticulture internship, and so I worked for um, a big vineyard management company out here. And I think in one summer, I saw like 75 different vineyards. And my whole um, thing there was I had lined up a, uh, a harvest for um, Antiquaterra later that, that fall, but um, I spent the summer going to every corner of the valley. And that was awesome because you get to walk up and down every row and you know, you're reading about the different AVAs out here, but you know, reading is different than you know, going and picking up the soil or seeing how if you work in a vineyard, you know, what the real diurnal shift is, or if you're there and it's super cold in the morning and then you know, it's, you're sweating like crazy by you know, three, four o'clock, you get to see you know, how all of that affects, um, affects the vines. So learned, learned a lot that summer, definitely got my steps in, but that was pre, I think, pedometer kind of stuff on, uh, on the iPhone there. But um, it, was, it was really, really a great experience doing that. But I did definitely, in doing that, feel like, okay, I can kind of say that I, I like being in the cellar more than being just out here all the time. And I think you know, part of that was because it was so many sites. I think if it was one site that I got to really get to know really well, that level of intimacy with a, with a vineyard site is, is invaluable in terms of the winemaking decisions that happen thereafter. And I find myself feeling that way more with you know, working with the same sites every year for my own brand now, but um, but at the time it just felt like this feels like so much, you know. And I wanted to kind of focus on get back into to uh, the cellar work there. So uh, so yeah, then I moved into um, into working at uh, Harvest at Antiquaterra, and that was great. I mean, that was really um, formative because it felt like for the first time I was working with someone who was had kind of this shared energy around like wine in general. Like it, it felt like a level of, um, I mean, you've, you've heard the way that, that Maggie talks about wine. It's, it's, she's very just knowledgeable and, and you can tell that there's this, like she's looking at it from a very creative kind of angle and not just like commoditized wine. It's like, this is an expression of creativity. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I've always felt about it. Again, it's like, those are the styles of wines that I've always gravitated towards. But to feel like I finally was like touched down in a place where that was, that was the driving force um, was, was really, it really resonated with me. So, um, so that was such a unique experience. And that was uh, right around, so uh, her assistant winemaker had left. And so it was Maggie and six interns basically. Uh, and so we really got to, I think 
you know, it was 14, or excuse me, that was 16, was, was a fantastic vintage, but um, it was really, I think, a unique time for Antique Guitar because it, it meant that we had so much more exposure to her and to, you know, the, the winemaking process there, which was, um, which was really unique mm -hmm. and, and different from other places. I mean, in terms of, you know, wine, wine making, like there's, you know, your hand snipping Syrah grapes, you know, from the Rakus, just to explore what, you know, whole cluster without the stems looks like. And, and you're exploring, you know, different curiosities of like, well, what if we age in this or try this, or, you know, we're gonna dry um, Chardonnay in, you know, in baskets to try to concentrate them a little bit. All different things that I think, you know, she would always say no compromise, and it really felt like that. Like it felt like we were in a position where it was like, look, here's here's a wild idea, and let's just let's just see what happens. And and I think that we were all energized by that, which was really, really neat. Um, and so after harvest, there, uh, Maggie was like, hey, you should stick around. And so, um, you know, I think she and I had a really good rapport, and so I stuck around, and and um, I was moved into kind of managing her hospitality program for her as well. And um, what I loved most about that was the fact that we were talking not just about the wine we were making in the building, but also wine from other producers around the world that we found inspiring or that just kind of gave us sustenance. And I think that that's really, um, really such a unique thing because a lot of the times, you know, when you're working, in my experience working in tasting rooms, I felt sometimes like you know, you're talking about the same three to five wines every day. It felt like it was getting a little, um, not scripted, but just like, you know, you kind of go through the motions a little bit. And so to be in a place where, you know, working with Maggie was changing the, the menu of wines, you know, every two weeks, if that, maybe even sooner, because we were getting, you know, one bottle of this that was, you know, two bottles were allocated to Oregon and we got one bottle of it, you know, that kind of thing. And so it was so neat because it meant it now I was like, back to kind of the Samoye side of things, but also still with the toe in, in production as well. And, and so really felt this like full, um, uh, full experience kind of coming together. It was really rounded. Um, but I did that, you know, for, for some time. And then in 2017, uh, a friend reached out to me and he said, hey, uh, I know you really want to make Gamay. Uh, there's some Gamay that's available. And so, you know, when I, I'm, I feel very lucky. I've, I've been able to make some really great friends out here. And I think early days, I kind of put it out into the universe of like, hey, I would like to make GAMA someday. I knew that some of it was planted out here. I also know it's really hard to come by. And so to see that moment in New York really kind of come full circle um, was really uh, was really neat. And so I just, I had to do it. So I, um, so I said yes. And, uh, and so I left my job again, because apparently I get really good at uh, just taking that, taking that leap of faith. Uh, and so I went and I made 120 cases worth of, of uh, Gamay up at, uh, up at a buddy of mine's cellar. And um, once all the wine, you know, you get through harvest and everything's kind of tucked in the barrel, you know, you're like, cool, so I've got 12 months, <laughs> you know, and this isn't cheap and I gotta live, like what do I do next? And so I had this, uh, I had this like moment where I was just browsing, you know, the wine classifieds, you know, the job boards, and I saw there was this job posting on there. It didn't say what the company was for. It didn't say like it was pretty nondescript, but it, it kind of read like a late night infomercial. It was like, are you a winemaker who like needs to make some extra cash? You know, like that kind of thing. And so I just answered. I was like, you know, I'm going for it. And so I just like I was like, hey, yeah, you know, I'm I'm interested in this. And it turned out that it was a, a wine shop in uh, up in Portland. 
this was like cool. So now I live out here and I'm gonna have to commute up to, up to Portland in the same way that I was living in Portland and commuting out to Rexhill. So I have a knack for, uh, for working and, and living uh, far from, from one another. But I, I, I you know, got this job managing a wine retail shop up in Portland and it was a pretty unique experience in that way in that um, it wasn't a wine retail shop that was selling wines that we were purchasing wholesale. We were basically direct importing the wines from producers in, um, in Europe and then selling them direct to consumer here in Oregon. And so what I felt was, was unique in that regard was that we were working with much smaller producers, folks who are doing kind of similar scale things like I'm doing now out there mm -hmm. and telling their stories. And so again, it felt like there was this you know, opportunity to be a storyteller, but also that you're, there's, we're working with the human element again. And, and that was always, has always been um, really important for, for my particular appreciation in, in wines. And so, um, so I was doing that and running this shop and I, I you know, was talking to the, the owner, lived in France, so I was the sole employee here. And uh, I got to a point where I was like, hey, you know, we're, we're, I'm noticing so much of our business is, is kind of geared towards, um, towards you know, our, our mailing list and folks who just come and pick up. Like, we weren't getting as much walk-in traffic, I think, at the time. It wasn't, like, um, in a particularly well-suited neighborhood for a wine shop. Um, just because it was, it was quiet. Like, things shut down in that neighborhood and then nobody's really walking around. So, uh, so I said, hey, you know, we've got this storage warehouse in southeast Portland where we receive all our wine. Let's let's move the whole the whole thing over over there, and uh, and do things more event based and and you know, open bottles and taste and all that stuff. And and so, I shut down the shop and moved everything over there, and that actually really started to work out in terms of um, just kind of like delineating time and scheduling for me because I got to do that and I wasn't babysitting store hours. Instead, it was, you know, really getting to do, you know, the best work and really, you know, have these great events. But then the rest of my time, I could be out here starting to grow, grow this business. Um, and so that was like all happening kind of simultaneously. But in 20, after 2017 ended, I remember looking around at a certain point that first year, um, just making as little wine as I did, but being in, in another cellar and saying, hey, you know, there are other custom crush clients here, you know, like this is really cool, but like how do I, how do, I do this for myself? You know, how do, like I just started to really get um, curious about the business side of. I've always been curious about the production side and the sales side, but it was like now starting to figure out like, hey, what are the nuts and bolts that go into actually, you know, propping this whole thing up? And so I just started to do research and I started to ask friends and I started to, you know, put pricing and numbers together and all that. And I said, how much wine do I really need to make to justify, you know, my own little shoebox of a winery to, to kind of do something? And at that point, you know, you fast forward to, to March of uh, 2018 and, and I, I signed a lease on, on, on a shoebox, you know? And, and at that point, I was like, great, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this thing work. And so I took everything that I was, you know, saving my entire paychecks other than, you know, paying for what I needed to live, we're just gonna start flooding into this business. I was like, I'm gonna go for it. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so it, it just started from, 120 cases to year two, I was, you know, under contract for about 550 cases worth of, of um, wine. So I was moving from Giscamay to Pinot Noir and Chardonnay as well. Um, and I built out this space, so we were talking a little earlier, but it was just a, a you know, a shell of, of a rectangle and then, you know, put in the wall and the insulation and the power and all that kind of stuff that, and then started to find, um, find equipment online and, and, uh, and, and grow from there. 
Uh, and so just kind of squeezed everything into this space. And, uh, and then after year two, I was like, all right, you know, got to make more. And just kind of <laughs> kept my foot on the gas pedal. And so went from year two to, to um, 2019, I brought in about uh, 750 cases worth of, of wine uh, to make in that regard. And then that was the first year I brought in some Pinot Gris as well and started to play around with um, just a couple other, you know, like fun varietals, and and what I've I've found is that along the way I just try to, to, um, you know, keep keep the blade sharp by not just focusing on you know Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and all that stuff. Um, but it's been you know this will be year six now going into this harvest, and uh, last year I made uh, just under two thousand cases, and so this year I'm hoping to hoping to ambitiously kind of keep keep rolling forward, but. I mean, I joked earlier about you know everything feeling like it's kind of muffin topping you know out of here, and it's it's I think it's a great energy to be in. You know, I think the alternative would be um, feeling like it was too much space or, or too you know daunting to be into a project mm -hmm. this far. Um, but now I just feel like I'm I'm in a place where I just I want to keep growing as long as I can sustain it. And I'm at a place now where I'm you know I've now phased out of of the uh, the other uh, the other job as well. So kind of grew that that company and. and and, and got to a place where I said, "Hey, you know what? I've got to um, I've got to go focus on on my own stuff now, which is which is really exciting, nerve-wracking, but exciting for sure." Uh, and so, yeah, we're we're you know staring down the the, the barrel of, of a bottling date here in in a couple weeks of uh, of the most wine I've ever done in a single bottling run, and I'm I'm really grateful that uh, to be in a place where it seems like you know we're we're keeping up with demand here, which is good. So, so yeah. But we should probably talk a little bit about uh, about Praytel the brand and all that stuff. Praytel the that, brand. That's yeah, hard to yeah, know. My next question yeah. was going to be, tell me about. So you you started kind of on a lark. You had you had access to Gamay. You wanted yeah. to make Gamay. You made some Gamay. Uh, at what point did you start to think like this was something you it was going to be a, become a business, become a become a thing, and. And it will, and what's the tell me, take us through kind of the timeline of finding more grapes, finding yeah. a name, getting all your licensing, sure. all of that stuff, and getting started. Yeah. So you know, making that first 120 cases was, um, you know, I didn't know what to expect from it, and I think once the ideas of what the brand would be and the aesthetic and all that started to come together, that's the moment that it felt like this is a real brand. This needs to be a real business. Mm -hmm. So the branding itself, so pray tell as a name is um, is something that you know at the time, trying to come up with a name was was so challenging. I mean, you just you're like, oh, I've got this idea, and then you look it up, and one winery used it for a cuvee six years ago, and it's still trademark. You know, like that. It just I felt like it was like such a, a hard thing to figure out what is a, a name that that just tells your story too. You know, and and so. Um, Fortunately, I'm, you know, I've got a lot of um, a lot of free opinions in a big Italian family, and so workshopping <laughs> stuff like that is always fun. Uh, I think one person was like Tommy's wine, and I was like, I can't call it Tommy's wine. You know, we got we got to get it a little more more professional than that. <laughs> but you know, it's uh, it came up kind of facetiously. It was, um, you know, I think we were all kind of like joking, and, and it got like a little heated. And somebody said something, and I was just like, really, that's what you think it should be? Pray tell. And at that point, you know, I just kind of stopped dead in my tracks, and I was like, "That's that's the name, pray tell." And the reason I love it is because, you know, it's it's used. It has been used as an expression of earnest curiosity, and I'd say that that's 
really like what defines this place is curiosity and just constantly wanting to learn. Um, but I also like that it's a little tongue in cheek too. Like, oh, you've got, you know, an opinion about my quarantine weight gain, pray tell, you know, like it's just, it's, it's, it's meant to, to be a good reminder that look, this can all feel really heavy. You could take yourself too seriously. Don't take yourself too seriously. I didn't want to fall into that trope of, of being just another, you know, person with like a serious, you know, furrowed brow at a, at a tasting. You know, I want people to drink the wine and smile and, and, and I want it to be something that could be, be fun too. And remind myself to make it fun. I mean, you know, I'm the only person in the building. It's got to be fun. Otherwise I'll lose my marbles. So I've got to, got to keep it a little light on its feet. So, you know, that's, I think where, uh, where, you know, the, that's where the name came from. And then the branding itself, like the, the imagery of everything, um, was, was, um, it was a process. So I tried, you know, again, you know, I grew up painting and drawing and all that stuff, you know, just for fun. But um, I tried to, I tried all those options when trying to come up with the aesthetic. So I've, I've got, you know, all the early days kind of drafts of things. And the first label I, I had ever made was the, the Gamay label, which I don't believe I have on the table. But um, I got to a place where, you know, I tried all those things. I couldn't really find what was working with the the energy that I wanted the brand to give. And so it got to a place where my uncle, who is now a, um, he and his wife, they own a, an art farm out in, uh, out in Ireland. They do like an art camp and stuff like that. Her family has this, this barn that's been in their family for like generations. And so they converted it into this beautiful art studio. And they have students from all over the world go out there in the summer. But they had kind of, you know, just kind of, again, workshopping things with people. Um, it came up that, uh, hey, you should try cutting it out. And I think that they had kind of, him knowing and growing up in the same area as, as me, you know, as a kid, I think he had kind of known that when I was younger, um, there used to be this really amazing art collection. It was called the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia. And it was all this later Henri Matisse work where he could no longer paint anymore. And so he started cutting things out. And I always just gravitated towards that work. Um, I thought that it was so cool to see something really beautiful made out of something so rudimentary. And it, and it reminded me of, you know, experience as a kid. Like, what's the some of the earliest you know art form you learn as a kid beyond watercolors, like construction paper and scissors? And so I was like, yeah, you know, I like this. I like this look. I like this aesthetic for for the brand because I think there is this really cool parallel to you know, trying to make something really beautiful out of something as simple as grapes too. And so I thought, hey, here's this full thing where, you know, Maggie always said, plow to the end of the row. You know, and I, I look at, we've had so many, you know, great wines in our lives that like, you're like, ah, like the label's not great. You know, I wish it, I wish it reflected the magic of what's inside of it. Or, you know, the opposite, you've had a wine that has like a great label and then you're like, ah, you know, like the wine was fine. And so I really wanted something that, that showed that I'm being deliberate and trying to tell a full story from, you know, from the grapes, you know, working directly with the farmers that I work with all the way to, you know, designing the labels and even, um, you know, like I blend all the wax colors myself. I start with primary colors and I stand over a crock pot and, you know, should probably open the door when I do it, but you know, you breathe it in, but you know, I'll blend all the colors to, to match, you know, what I think the label, um, label art and feel look like as well. So it, it meant, you know, I wanted this again to be something that was an expression of my own creativity. And so in that regard, having the label be something I did and taking ownership of every part of this process has been, been really um, fundamental for me. So once that, once I saw like the finished product of that 2017 vintage of Gamay, where it had the label on it, it had the, you know, the wax and it had everything. 
it, that's when it felt real. Mm -hmm. And that's that moment where I think I was like, I can do this. I can, I think I can do this. And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna try to, you know, to just jump in the deep end with it and go from there. Mm -hmm. And in year two, when it expanded beyond just the one wine and show, so I, we, so I released the wine the first time I had ever poured it for anybody. There was a festival up in Portland called I Love Gamay. And I was like, hey, you know, I've been in this bubble by myself, you know, here, let's go share it with so many people. <laughs> that was, that was crazy. Uh, and so I went up to Portland and I decided to pour it and, and at this event and it went really well. It ended up being like their, their number one selling wine as a thing. And I was like, wow, this is like, I love this, you know, this feeling of like positivity and sharing. I mean, you know, I think a lot of times in, in any creative endeavor, particularly one that's like personal, you're going to feel vulnerable putting yourself out there. And so I felt like, you know, I was like shaking driving to that tasting. I remember because I was like, there's, you know, there's a lot of pressure here. It's, it's me saying hello for the first time with this stuff and getting to hear people, you know, have opinions about things. And I promise you later on in the day after they've tasted at other tables, people definitely have opinions about things. I was just really lucky that their opinions were, were um, in appreciation of, of what I had done. So that felt really good too. Uh, and so all of that kind of compounding together was was really what kind of pushed me into um, into wanting to to make this thing a, a reality here. And it had always been a goal. I mean, I think in the back of my head, you know, I always wanted some element of my own. You know, you have to kind of like go spread your wings a little bit and do your own thing. I think particularly if you feel compelled during the like the creative kind of scope of it all. And so I think at that point, like, yeah, whether I chose to do it, you know, after working it in another cellar for 10 years and, and honing, you know, somebody else's style for so long, or if, if I chose to do it after, you know, making wine for five years, you know, and then going off and doing it. I mean, I think at that point, it just felt like it's, it's gotta be mine. So, you know, yes, there's other, uh, you know, foundational knowledge you can have, but you know, that's why you're lucky enough to have friends and ask questions too along the way, you know? And I think that there's luckily enough in, in this valley, there's a strong sense of community that, um, that nobody shies away from that. Nobody shies away from like, hey, oh, you know, you shouldn't bring that up or don't talk. You know, it's, it seems like a very real place to make wine still, which is great, so, so yeah. So you had a, obviously had a background in, in retail at this point and mm -hmm. hospitality, all the things, but but first time selling your own wine, as you mentioned, the vulnerability of, of putting yeah. it out there. So tell me, uh, what did you kind of what, what was your kind of strategy for selling wine, and what was your uh, what, as you expanded and had more wine to sell, how did that change? Yeah, well, I have to say early days, it felt like I remember thinking, wow, it's easier to sell someone else's wine. It's it's because it felt so. Um, maybe just the nerves of it all was was really what kind of made it feel that way. Mm -hmm. But it, it was like you know oh, I could read I could read up on this I can I can go you know do do your homework a little bit and and it felt like I've got this story kind of neatly put together you know and then I think for you know particularly early days you know you're you're kind of grappling with when it's your own brand you're grappling with what's the narrative I want to tell do you know how. You know, you practice telling your story. You know, talking about yourself is kind of hard. You know, I mean, even in a, in a scenario like this, I mean, it's it's uh, it's you know, it's not necessarily something that you know a lot of people get much practice around. And so, um, I think it felt early on like um, it was a little scary. And so, I think I just had to get to a place with comfort and saying like, hey, you know, the wine isn't going to be for everybody, mm. and that's okay. 
and now I lean into that more than ever. I'm like, if I pour wine for 10 people at a table and all 10 people say it's fine, I've not done my job. Like I want a wine that's divisive because it means that I'm making something that, you know, I want five people or more hopefully at that table to say they absolutely love it and five people to have an opinion and be like, no, hey, it's not for me. And the reason for that is because I know how subjective wine is mm -hmm. and I know we all have different palates. And so, you know, to, to make a wine that 10 people say is fine feels like it's pandering and I don't want to do that. You know, I want something that, that can split a room and have people really, really care about what mm -hmm. they're drinking. And people say, hey, you know what, I could see what he went for, but might not be to my style. So it's funny how that, that shift and that confidence kind of comes in time. But I think a lot of that too is just, you know, hey, I have, it wasn't, you know, that was my first time making wine for myself out of the gates. You know, it's, it's you're, you're wanting to kind of get positive reinforcement for something that you're putting so much into is also terrifying and from a financial standpoint because you're like, ah, I need it to, I need to do well. Um, whereas now, you know, I feel like I'm starting to kind of find my footing with, you know, the right partners and distribution and, and customer base and all that, where it feels like, hey, you know, even though my vineyard sources change, you know, from time to time, or I just decide to, to go off on a whim and make something different, they're starting to understand what pray tell as a vision is versus what just, you know, like, oh, the wine needs to be the same year after year. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really what drove me to, to really want to be in Oregon in the first place too, particularly the Willamette was vintage variation, you know, seeing that you could have, you know, the coldest vintage on record in 11, and then at the time, the warmest vintage on record the next year, you know, that, that requires, I mean, that, those are two different customer bases in terms of styles of wine. Mm -hmm. So to me, it was, it was really cool to see, like, you're selling a story here. And the story is, is again, what I gravitate towards. And, and I love that every vintage here can be different. And it requires you as a winemaker to, it keeps your job interesting, but it keeps you kind of light on your toes as well. You know, you can't be too pragmatic and say, you know, hey, here's the recipe. You know, this is a place where you need to look at, you know, the vintage in front of you and, and be responsive to it mm -hmm. in some way. And, and that's, I think it's, it's given me a little steeper of a learning curve for sure in terms of winemaking, but it, it's, it's been, um, I'd say, um, a fast track too in terms of just really getting your footing in terms of making wine for sure. You mentioned obviously building partnerships with, with grape growers and, mm -hmm. and vineyards uh, as you're growing, obviously more and more need for that. So tell me about what you're seeking when it comes mm -hmm. to a sort of a vineyard partner uh, and building those relationships and uh, what kind of you want to be able to display in your wine based sure. on those. Yeah, I mean, from from day one, I said that I wanted um, I wanted it all to be organic or biodynamically farmed fruit. That was just like, you know, foundational kind of principle in, in, in the building here. Not that I care about the certifications or anything like that. I, I respect them, I appreciate them, but it was just, I want that level of intentionality in, um, in the farming because it's gonna be matched when it gets into the cellar. If we're playing like winemaker bingo, I'm, I'm sure they're hitting like all the words intentional and sustainable and all that, right? Um, but I really wanted uh, I really wanted wines that were coming from. To, I wanted to make wines coming from sites that I think you know. If I'm going to take this, you know, and try to do the best work from it, we've got to start with the best possible ingredients. And so um, I started to seek out uh, vineyards that had fruit available. And, and and I think as a young you know young brand. As a small brand, it puts you in a pretty unique position from, from like a shopping standpoint because you're not going into a vineyard and saying, hey, can I get those 10 blocks or those 10 acres? You're going in and you're saying like, hey, can I get 
a ton, you know, and, and are you willing to like, let me be the little, the little pest here that gets to play around. And so I've learned from early days, my dad always taught me be pleasantly persistent. And so I just try to, to be, you know, really pleasantly persistent about, Hey, you know, I really, really want to work with your site. I'm going to pay you on time. You know, I'm going to do what I need to do to make this happen. And I would love for an opportunity to, to bring in your, you know, to work with your fruit. Mm -hmm. And I think from there, you know, it's been lucky that it's now, now I'm in a place where I could say, Hey, you know, I'll take 10 tons or, you know, it's, it's a different story a little now for me, which is great. Cause it makes buying a little more fun. The challenge now is just that fruit's harder to come by. You know, I mean, you've got, you know, vintages where just there's much lower fruit set or frost damage or, you know, smoke or whatever it's going to be. But, um, you know, I think that those are those are all uh, different challenges that again make make um, this you know being kind of a one person operation you know make add some dimensionality to to what I do for a living, which is great. So, um, but building relationships to answer your question is probably the most important element to to sourcing fruit. I'd rather work with you know the right people and pay more than um, than take any shortcuts there. And so um, there are, we're really lucky that there are some fantastic human beings in this Willamette Valley who, who make and grow some great grapes and have been lucky enough to, to kind of you know, work with them over the years. Mm -hmm. So um, that's, that to me is, I think it's gotten to a place where sometimes because this is a business, you know, sometimes it starts to feel like people are kind of operating from a business standpoint. And so I've, you know, look, as a small brand, you know, I've been, you know, kind of, you know, edged out of, of certain sites. You know, one year I get to work with a site and then the next year you're like, oh, well, that person who's buying 10 acres, their intern team wants to make me this year. And you're like, cool, no, but like I'm trying to build a brand, right? Uh, so, you know, it's stuff like that where it's like, hey, you know, every year since I've started, I've changed sites for Gamay. I've had a couple overlap vintages, but it's just worked out that, you know, the demand for it's high. Same with Chardonnay. Chardonnay's moved around. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a good problem for the Willamette Valley right now uh, to, to see that fruit is in this much demand. It just requires you to be, you know, kind of on top of, uh, on top of your own program and, and constantly looking and, and, you know, putting it out there of what you're looking for, for sure. But the human side, for sure, is, is I think, what keeps building relationships and working and making this sustainable um, all worthwhile. You brought up vintage variation, and of course, uh, we've had some interesting ones recently. So I want to back up to talk about 2020 a little bit. Sure. You're just starting to build your brand. You've just, you know, 2019, you're, you've grown quite a bit. So tell me about 2020, both uh, sort of from the pandemic perspective and from the 2020 harvest perspective. What did you have to adjust, pivot in your brand, uh, and kind of what did you, what strategies did you use to get sure. through and get out of it? Well, that was a year that kind of. Um, it, it, it put the brakes on on the the kind of like big jumps in growth year over year, um, and a lot of that was just because of availability of fruit. So, from a winemaking standpoint, I think I scaled back in 2020 to make only something like maybe 500 cases after the previous year was a 250 case jump. So that was um, that was a little bit of a gut punch in in terms of. Uh, you know, just just that kind of continued growth and, mm -hmm. and sales expectations, because at this point, you know, you start to open up new markets around the country for distribution. And, you know, everybody wants, you know, a certain amount of wine at that point. And so I was like, look, you know, this is this is what it is. I think from a um, from like a brand building side of things, the, the challenge in 2020 was in March, I think like the second week of March, I was scheduled to do um, my first ever market visits. So the previous few years, I'd released some of the wines, I've gotten out there, uh, you know, 
just by like the few places that it was being sold locally and, and said hello. But in 2020, that March was supposed to be the first time I was really like, hey, this is my brand, this is me. And, and so I always joke with my distributors because they're like, hey, your, your back labels are so you know, nondescript because it just says the label, you know, it says the very pertinent information. It says the varietal, it says you know, the ABV, all the stuff that keeps it compliant. But I always imagined as a small brand, especially early days, I'd be standing next to the bottle or I'd be close enough with the people selling the wine for me that I would empower them to tell the story. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, 2020 required that pivot of like, hey, well, Zoom calls were great. Thank goodness for those, some of them, but then not all of them. <laughs> but uh, but it, it made me kind of have to change things around a little bit. And so that March I was supposed to go, I was supposed to hit Chicago for a big wine fair. And then I had like these whole plans for the, this East Coast leg of, of you know, doing um, New York, New Jersey, PA, DC, and, and um, all the places where the wine was starting to show up. And it just all got canceled. And um, and so at that point, I started, you know, working with saying like, hey, we, my, my, all my wholesalers, they had very real conversations with me. They're like, look, we just got the wines in the warehouse. You know, we hope we can pay you, mm -hmm. you know? And I think at that point, you just have to believe that like, you just, you can't shy away. You got to kind of, you're like, all right, I'm already in the deep end. So let's just, let's just see what comes of this. And so um, I said, look, we're going to we're going to we're going to sell wine like we got to make it happen. Right. I mean, people are still, you know, at home, you know, they're drinking wine still. We see this, you know, because they were like, well, you know, we hope we can pay. And so at that point, I was like, OK, well, you got it. Good luck. Let me know how I can how, like I will Zoom call with, you know, your team. I'll Zoom call with your, you know, your retail partners if they want to do tastings with me or if they have customers. And so what was really cool is that they actually took me up on it. And so I started to do like direct to consumer facing uh, Zoom calls with like a wine retail shop. There's one in like Denver, for example. They put together this little shop called Proof that has this great selection. They put together uh, a, a Zoom tasting with me for their customers. And so that's how they were selling my wine. And so for me, it's like, look, those wines are in theory already sold because I sold them, but I'll double down and now, and like, I'll sell them for, for you because I know that I need to tell the story mm -hmm. and just doing stuff like that was, was really important. And then, you know, I, again, it was like, I, you know, at that point I had about 500 cases of wine to sell and, and fortunately, you know, all the wine sold, which was great. And then in 2021, so, you know, the nice thing about kind of how, I mean, this is not a business of instant gratification by any means, but the nice thing about that delayed kind of timing was that the 20, 2020 wines weren't going to release until a later date. Mm -hmm. So at that point I knew, I was like, oh, I still have more wine than I've ever had to sell, but you know, it's gonna hit me, it's gonna catch up to me at some point. And so my other pivot, or adjustment rather, was in 2021, I brought in more, so I went from my biggest vintage being in 2019 at 750 cases. In 2021, I brought in the equivalent of about um, 1,900 cases worth of wine. And I made a very deliberate decision during that vintage to make two distinctly, like treat it as if it were two different vintages. And so I deliberately made wines that I thought could be ex more expressive and friendlier early on so that they could release simultaneously what I, with what I was releasing from 2020. But then I also <laughs> leaned into making wines that had a little more structure and a little more heft to them so that they could kind of trail and release a little later. And so I went from 
in 2020, just a single wine release in the spring to now I uh, do a spring release and a fall release every year as well. So it's been, it's been interesting to kind of, you know, um, ride that storm out a little bit and just see the flow of things. But I think it's, it's actually come together pretty well so far, knock wood, so, so yeah. But what about the future for yourself? You mentioned you want to keep growing as much as you can, as long as you can. So do you have a, do you have an eventual goal in mind? Is there something you haven't reached yet that you want to reach a number of cases or a, a new building or what's kind of your long-term goal? Yeah, I think, I think I have, I have a lot of goals for this. I mean, I, I am, um, I love it because you know Maggie always jokes about being competitive. I mean, I, I'm I'm competitive in a sense that I want to see the brand do well, but I also know that there's like I believe that there's enough shelf space for everybody. You just got to kind of get creative, and and we all do right by the Willamette Valley if we're continuing to support one another out here. And so, you know, I think I think that there is space for me to continue to grow this thing, and and I'm I'm really excited about it. I don't have a particular. Um, a, like I don't have an like ideal case production in mind. I have idea. I have visions of like what I see a bigger you know winery. I see you know working with more fruit and all that kind of stuff and and continuing to diversify um, the varietals that I work with. So in 2021, again treating it like it was two different vintages, I brought in six different varietals from seven different vineyards. So that's been. Um, so fun because you know I have the hallmark varietals I want to make every year. You know your Pinot Noir, your Gamay, Chardonnay, obviously, um, because I think those are the pedigreed varietals that suit this region so well. Mm -hmm. And you know I think that those are are fun varieties. I mean I love making Chardonnay. I think it's the hardest varietal to make well, but I also think it's something that I want to make in a way that is um, you know I could put next to the people out here I admire as well. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I also have have you know made Mondus in the past, and I've made um, Saint Laurent and uh, you know Pinot Gris. This year, I made Syrah and I made Merlot from the rocks. You know, still Oregon, but just a little different. Um, I think that the future out here is um, is still wide open in terms of of just diversity. You know, it's been Oregon, rightly so, has has done such an amazing job of kind of co-branding Willamette Valley and Pinot Noir. I mean, it's it's what you know they're synonymous, and it's what people have drawn attention to this region for. But you know, now we're in a place that you can start to see, like, if somebody's going to plant a vineyard, dedicating acreage to other varietals that that could work. You know, and I think all of that is stuff that I want to be at the forefront of of working with for sure. Mm -hmm. But I, like I said, I I do love the idea of kind of this balancing act of, you know, the traditional you know tradition obviously with. Um, with uh, you know exploration as well, and kind of marrying those two, and I think that that's that's generally my my just approach to winemaking and to the brand in general is to show and pay respect to you know all that we know about making working with these varietals, but also not being afraid of of kind of exploring further curiosities with them. I mean, I, you know, I, I've got some wines that you know are 100% varietal uh, specific, and I think my goal with them is to to keep them as as you know pure varietal typicity and and what I think is is a, is a serious approach. But then, you know, I've also got a wine that I made this year that's a blend of Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, Chardonnay, and Gamay, and that for me was 
you know, the idea there was to look at, you know, what does terroir look like at a bird's eye view? Mm -hmm. Everything out here in terms of, of the story that we know so far has been so granular with Pinot Noir. It's, you know, here's this single vineyard or single block or single clone bottling of Pinot Noir. And I love that metadata. I mean, the dork in me, of course, loves getting super granular with it. But, you know, it's time to zoom out a little bit too and see, you know, what are the, the broader strokes or what's next mm -hmm. and, and what can we, how do we kind of reconcile those two things at different levels? And so that's, um, that's something that I want this brand to, to represent as, as kind of doing a little bit of both. And, and if I could do that and grow it where uh, I can still keep my hands in fermenters and not feel like I'm, you know, making work orders in an office somewhere, then, then that's the size I want to grow to. And whatever that production volume means, that's what it'll be. Mm -hmm. um, fortunately, if I do write a work order in an office, I'm the person who has to do set work order at this moment. But, um, but you know, I think as things grow, I mean, it's it's hard to do it by yourself. It is. My my dad comes out usually for a week during harvest, which is great. So I'll usually put him to work. Um, I've had some friends come out over the years. You know, a week here, a week there, which is really helpful. The thing is, everybody always wants to come out at the same time because they're like, oh, it's going to be fun and a party. And so I'm like, yeah, no, no, no. Well, this is work. You know, <laughs> this is we got to do some work, you guys. Um, but I think in terms of uh, in terms of the growth, I mean, yeah, that's that's. I don't have a, a hard and fast kind of um, like rubric for for what I need to stick to. I think you know the the fun thing about this place is that you know there are no rules. I don't want there to feel like there are rules, which is which is um, when I think creativity thrives is when you don't put a leash around it. So that's my goal is to not come in here and and have um, put myself in in uh, in a corner by any means. So yeah. So you talked a little bit about kind of the future for Oregon mm -hmm. uh, there, and obviously your first impressions of Oregon were, were interesting, I thought, as you got kind of the authenticity of the place. So take me through the changes you've seen uh, as now, you, now that you're in Oregon and you're in part of the industry, and, and give me a look ahead at what else you might see down the road for the wine industry. I think uh, in terms of, of changes that I've seen, I mean, it's it's the first one, you know, right out of the gates is just observational, which is you're seeing just a, a lot of investment, whether it's investment from out of state or out of country to, to the Willamette Valley or even just brands, you know, kind of leveling up, you know, seeing uh, wineries that have gone from, you know, a little more, you know, like a pole barn kind of thing to an actual, you know, you know, here's our tasting room, you know, and it's got comfy chairs in it and it's actually, you know, temperature regulated. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think one of the charms of tasting in Oregon for so long has been, you know, the fact that you like have a disclaimer in your invitation, like it gets a little chilly, you might want to wear a jacket, you know, and I think that 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 would last for a while. But as tourism changes here and there's an increase, like we, there is kind of this, you know, shift to all right, let's elevate here. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you know. I always joke because usually around that time of year, during harvest, when I do have family or friends in town who who want to come help out, I try to put together like some tastings in some capacity. And usually, it's like it's been in the past. It's like, hey, you know, let's just go to these places. We'll pop in. And now it's like, well, I planned us three lunches today because that's the only way we're going to taste these wines. It's three different lunches that are two hours apiece. And I think that that's great. But I think um, it's just a sign of of the region kind of, you know, just kind of moving up in terms of, of the professionalism of how we treat and how we kind of open our doors to to um, to tourists, mm -hmm. basically. Um, I think we're seeing obviously a lot more uh, acreage being dedicated to 
to um, grapevines. Um, you know, I think that that's, that's a great thing. It's, it's unavoidable. I think at the same time, I would love to see just varietal diversity as well. You know, a lot of the times, particularly like with the sites I had to work, I've worked with over the years, it's like, yeah, you know, this is a site that's got 45 acres planted, you know, mostly to Pinot Noir. And then here's like half an acre to Gamay and it's in the coldest part of the vineyard. And you're like, well, hold on a second. You know, like, let's think this through a little bit. Like that's, it needs a little more sunshine. It should like, like seeing people come into the region who are, or people who've been here who are planting other things with intention, I think is really cool. You know, I think um, Andrew and Andrea Beckham are a great example of that, where they've got a number of different varietals planted and, and it's in the nature of exploration. You know, they've got all those things planted. Um, I remember I worked with a vineyard called Omero mm -hmm. uh, years ago, and uh, I worked with it until it was sold. And those vines, there were about two acres planted out there of just experimental things. And when it sold, all those vines were ripped out and then replanted to, um, to Pinot Noir. <laughs> but, you know, hoping that more people um, make deliberate decisions to plant with curiosity in mind and not dollar signs in mind. And I know that that's a big ask because it is certainly not getting any cheaper to buy land or plant it. But, you know, I think the reason we're here in the first place is because people in the 60s decided to be curious about planting Pinot Noir and other things. Mm -hmm. And then once they figured out that that worked, it seemed like there's just been this like very mono-focused approach to like, here's, here's the formula and it's worked and it's gotten us to this place, but we need, we need to retain and sustain that curiosity as well from any, and the thing is, is like those varietals are the hardest ones to come by because every, most winemakers actually have the curiosity to work with them. We just need vineyard, uh, you know, vineyard designations to kind of have that too. So, mm -hmm. so I see that, um, I do see more planting happening and then, and then I think just from a, it's, it's a bigger valley now. I mean, it's just, there are more people here. It's, it's a bigger network. And so I think that that's great uh, for a lot of reasons because it just means that, you know, well, more friends. <laughs> but I think it's great because um, you've got a lot of different, um, different interpretations of what can be done. I mean, even if you were to say, look, we're only planting Pinot Noir from here on out, it's fine. You know, there are enough winemakers out here and an increasing number so that everybody's gonna have a different take on it too. And I think that that's, like diversifying not just what we put in the ground, but you know the people that we have here is really important. Mm -hmm. So seeing that it, you know, Oregon really felt like a special place to me, and and why I gravitated here was because it didn't feel like there was gatekeeping happening, mm -hmm. happening, and I, and I hope that we can continue that energy forward where it feels like an inclusive place that allows for somebody who has a dream that they could still do it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's my hope, and that's kind of what I'm seeing is, is so far is that that all those things are continuing, um, but the sense of community I think is is still alive and strong for sure, which is great. But that's that's where where we are I think and where we're going. But that's just my two cents also. All right, last question for you, and it's possibly the most important question of all because I've always wanted to ask it in an oral history interview: Pats or Genos? Oh man, oh man. Uh, I, can I say they're both lovely? Um, how much time do we have? <laughs> uh, we got like four more batteries yeah, in the bag. Yeah. You just oh, keep talking. Perfect. Um, I'll say this. I think that uh, I think that they're both. Neither one of them is a bad cheesesteak. They're both good cheesesteaks. But if I had my druthers, I would probably opt for uh, cheesesteak from John's. 
uh, they also make some really great roast pork as well. Yeah. But I've heard of John's. John's is really okay. good. They, I think they have a James Beard Award too for a cheesesteak, which is pretty awesome. They should, they should, that should be a category in every award ceremony. <laughs> got your, you know, your EGOT all for Tony, or, you know, for cheesesteaks basically. Yes. Um, yeah, it's a, Philly is, I will say, I'm gonna, hot take right now, the best sandwich town in America. I'm gonna say it. I know I'm a little biased, but. I, I'm not sure who would argue with you about that. I mean, people will. Oh. Maybe some New Yorkers, but that's all right. I got enough. I got enough <laughs> folks on my in my camp. Yeah. Awesome. Was well, all the questions that I have for you? Anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't I think, cover? I think we kind of covered a decent amount of it. Yeah. Well, I'm ready for part two, and you know, in the next uh, next couple of months, we'll put something together. <laughs> See if we could ship some cheesesteaks out here for the oh, team. Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah. my God, yes. Yeah. Thank you so much my for pleasure. your time, for yeah. your hospitality here, sharing your stories with us, and your sandwich hot take with us. <laughs> Go ahead and let you off the hook. Yeah, well, thank you, thank guys. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.